Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is uh, Joel Badal, and uh, I've been at Village for a long time. Um, I used to be a, well, I shouldn't say used to, I still am a pastor in many ways. I teach at a Bible college and uh, help future pastors get ready for ministry. I've been doing that for the last seven years. So it's a joy to be with you here today, and uh, my hope is that God would use his word to soften your heart and mine, and that we would hear from him what he would have to say through uh, this um, small little couple verses here that we're going to look at together. Let's pray. God, we worship you. Uh, we adore you. We give you thanks that uh, you have brought us here today as the body of Christ. And we know that in many communities around the United States, uh, men and women, children are coming uh, to worship uh, as the body of Christ and to lift up their voices, to pray, to read the scriptures, to hear from you. And Lord, we want to hear from you. Open our ears so that we can hear. Open our eyes so that we uh, may be able to see. And uh, use our hands and our feet to be uh, your servants in a world that needs the gospel. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my God and my rock. Amen. Amen. Well, when I was a young boy, I uh, was a young boy. I was in class, and there was a, um, a friend of mine named Bobby. Bobby, uh, his dad, was a minister in the community that we were living in. And we would hang out and um, play after school when we uh, could do that. And one day, Bobby came to school, and he had a really nice pen. Uh, you know, one of those pens that just, it, it just had that flair. When it touched the paper, it glided. I mean, and that's what I like. And today, I still like those really good pens. Well, there was a, a day in class when one of my pens uh, ran out of ink and I just, I needed one. The teacher wouldn't let us go to the locker. And uh, I said, Bobby, do you have a pen? He's like, yeah, I got a pen. And he went into his bag, pulled out the pen that I liked so much, and he gave it to me. And I enjoyed the rest of that day using his pen. And I never returned it back to him. Matter of fact, I kept using that pen throughout the whole year and into the next following year, school year, I kept that pen in my bag. And uh, one day he came up to me and said, hey, Joel, isn't that the pen I loaned to you about, about a year ago? Uh, no, I don't think so. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember in class? It was math class. I, you said you needed a pen and it ran out. I go, yeah. Uh, yeah, you caught me. And, and some of us today have gone down that path of wanting something in our life, and we, we take it. We're like the, the little boy at the store, and we want a pack of gum, and so our, we've asked our parents for that pack of gum, and, and they say no. We, we ask uh, our parents for the bag of chips, and they say no, and we look around the corner. We look up and down, and we take it, grab it, put it in our coat packet, uh, jacket, and we walk out, and we realize that we have stolen it. And Lest we confess, we get in trouble, and God is now upset at us, and we're to deal with that as Christians uh, in the Lord. And then you take the, the role of sin and temptation, those desires in our lives, those desires that the world shows us each and every day, and we move toward what James talks about, two types of tests. 
There's the internal test, which I just mentioned, the desires of our hearts, the things that we long for. And, and in, in reality, those things that we long for are not a sin in itself unless they're out of the bounds that God has set before us. If God has said, no, you can't have, and you take, and it doesn't belong, then that's a, that's a sin. And, and if you have a natural desire, that's, that's okay. So I, I wanted a pen, right? I, I wanted that pen. I, I liked it. But once it moved out of the realm uh, into the realm of sin is when I took it and I kept it, that became sin. Let's move to the second realm. The second realm is what James is talking about in chapter 1, and really throughout the whole book itself is, is this. There are not just uh, external realities that come about. There are the internal, uh, when we talk about sin, there are the external that speaks about the natural things that go on in the world. You know, the other day, one of my students said, my car broke down. Another student in class on uh, Thursday said, I, I was at an intersection and someone slammed into my car and I, my, my car was totaled. And I, I, we prayed in class for her, and she goes, I don't even know if I can come to school anymore. I, I prayed some more, Lord, would you provide a way? And right in that moment in time was a, an external struggle, trial in her life that she was going through, and you and I will go through even today. There are things that will come up in a day, in a week, in a month, this year, that are just a part of the natural brokenness in our, in our world. And you can... You can uh, calculate it, and you can try to plan for it and, it, and it just happens. The rug sometimes get pulled from your feet, and you're like, what did I do, Lord? What did I do, Lord, to, to inflict this, this, this pain over my life? And, and, and yet, we shouldn't be blaming God, because it's just a natural part of life that we go through these struggles and times of testing. So this is where James is going. James wants to show us two types of trials that come into our life. They're the internal ones that, that wage war in our heart, and they're the external ones. Yes, it can be because of injustice in our government or people around the world facing the injustice of their own personal government. It could be famine for certain people around the world where we enjoy what? Prosperity, food. We can go to the store, pick up our vegetables and fruit and our meat and go home, and we enjoy a good meal where others struggle. And for others, it can be a terminal illness that they acquire and they have to fight for the next several months and even years. For others, it could be a divorce. For others, it could be ending their life. For others, it's a, a trying times of emotion, up and down, failure in life, loss of job. Any one of these become trials and temptations in our life, and, and we have to persevere. We have to be believers in Jesus Christ that are willing to, to stand tall and, and not compromise the Christian faith, for this is really what James is asking us to do. Join with me in verse 2, and then we'll, we'll uh, go down to our primary text in verses 12 through uh, 18. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Look at then verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So James is using the same words here. He uses the, the, the form of the noun, and then he moves toward then the verb form of of trial and temptation, and he's trying to set what these things are. 
There are things that are naturally part of life. There are internal. The natural things, people want to get married, right? People want to have children. These are natural things that we desire. And when these things become out of the bounds of God's will, they become sin, as he says. And so we are then tempted to do things that which are opposite of God's holiness. Then there are the, stu- the external things that happen in your life, as I mentioned, and he is trying to set what these things are. Well, look what he says in the b- bottom part of um, verse 26. In, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Notice verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their what? What's it says? In their affliction. So orphans and widows in the time of James' writing are having a difficulty in their life. They've lost a spouse. They, they are now lost maybe their family. And so now they're orphans. They're going through a trial in their life. And if you're in that situation, in this time, it's, it's, it's looking bleak for the first century Christian. But today... We have a lot of resources for people who lose a spouse, right? We have Social Security that helps. We have people who can, uh, little children that can maybe go to extended family or even the orphanage. My grandfather, uh, my, mo- my mother's father, was an orphan. And uh, he lived in an orphanage for up until about age 13 until uh, one um, couple came who couldn't have any more children, wanted children, and said, we will adopt you. And uh, he, he, I remember telling us as, as little kids, he said it was, it was a trauma, traumatized time in his life where he just couldn't make sense of things. His, he didn't even think his father, his adoptive father, loved him. He uh, often talked about getting abused at home, even in an adopted situation. So I, I think about here this trial that the orphans and the widows are going through. This is a time of affliction in their life. And maybe that is what you're experiencing right now. You're going through some type of affliction, some type of pain, some type of suffering. And you're wondering, how can I gain perspective in these moments? So James is for you today. The book of James is for you. And my encouragement is that you would see God at work in your life. And whatever you're going through, whatever storm, whatever, whatever struggle it is, James has been written for you to be very practical. One of the things I've struggled with with the book of James, he's scatterbrained. He's um, a person who is over here, over here, over here, and over here. He just, like, just buckshot, just kind of flies all over the place. You're like, okay, right here he's talking about struggling. Next he's talking about bridling your tongue. Next he's talking about religious, you know, practices. Where is James in all of these things? Yeah, that's uh, what he is, and it's hard for Bible scholars and even pastors and even your small group leader maybe to figure out where is actually James going. Well, let me give you out some um, practical themes that he encourages us with. The first thing that James encourages us with is struggling with uncertainties. This is what's happening in chapter 1 and chapter 5. Uh, Pastor Travis mentions this, and he'll continue to do so. The second thing that James talks about, it very practically, is how to pray. How many of you struggle in your prayer? How many of you are tempted not to pray because you wonder, does God even answer 
my prayer. And maybe that's where you're at today. And so chapter 1 and chapter 3 focus on if you lack wisdom, what should you do? You should ask God. Are you lacking wisdom today? I know I am. And so I need to what? I need to ask God in my uncertainties. When I face um, an uncertain life before me, I know, God, you are sovereign and you are in control over my life, my coming and my going. You're sovereign over my family. You're sovereign over my income, my employment. You're sovereign, God. But in my uncertainty, I need to trust and ask for help in my time of need. And so James writes to you, you who are struggling in your prayer life. And then he goes all the way even to chapter 5. And he says, if, if any one of you are sick, and some of you might be even sick today. And James says, then pr- pray. Ask God. Call the elders of the church to come and anoint your head and pray. And the prayer that is offered up would, would do what, he says. He says it would, it, would, it would cause a healing to take place and confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. He warns us. I need warnings in my life. Warnings are sometimes that, that initial place that God uses so that, hey, Warning, warning, don't go down that road. Don't make that decision in your life because if you do, there are consequences behind that decision. So warnings are, are there to guide the believer along the way. And so James is writing to the Christian who's thinking about doing things such as falling into a temptation, yielding to the flesh. So James says, warnings here. I want to warn you about how to live the Christian life. Don't go after riches. Don't go after riches. And so he warns the rich people, and he warns the people struggling in poverty to yield to the Spirit and not to their flesh. Pray, he says, if you're struggling. If you lack wisdom, ask who? Ask God. So there are three things in this message I want you to walk away with that would encourage you to think about how God is in control of your life And when you go through trial and when you go through temptation, you can know for certainty that God has everything under control and he will give you a way of escape. And so we pray, just like the Lord taught us in in Matthew's gospel, Lord, lead us not into what? Lead us not into temptation. You wonder, why does Jesus put that little phrase in the prayer that we should pray often? is because this life is filled with many temptations and many trials. And when the tempter comes and when your flesh wants to do, you got to ask God. you got to ask God to deliver you from temptation's power so that you might live a victorious Christian life in this present era that you are living. So the first thing I want you to look at is the Christian, number one, the Christian is to endure this present life. The truth of the matter is, in verse 12, this is the call. Happy are you. Hey, James is just like his brother Jesus. Is, as, as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us the blessed. Blessed are you, those who persecute you. Blessed are those who, who insult you for my name's sake. Blessed are you, you who are peacemakers. And so James uses the same blessed. Happy are you when you go through various trials. Oh, I don't know about that, Joel. Don't know about that. And I'm saying, yes. Happy, blessed are you 
Why? Because this is what he answers, what he says in verse 2. Now he answers it in verse 12. The Christian is to endure all with steadfastness and perseverance this present life that you're going through. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, steady. I love that word, steady. You, you remain balanced in life. You don't get off kilter. You're, you're, you're steady. You're, you're running well the race that is set before you because Christ, who has already run that race, is seated at the right hand of God the Father and directing all the affairs of your life together. I like that. And so we, we have this account. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the test is this. You, you have to withstand the test. How many like tests? I hate tests. How many like comprehensive tests? I hate comprehensive tests. I, I, I often don't even give them in my classes because I hate them. So why would I want to inflict those on my students, right? But we have to, right? They're called assessments. And so we have to give these assessments out. But I remember when I was going through my, my PhD program, and it came to the tail end of the program, and they call it the comprehensive exams. I was like, oh, dear. What does that entail? Well, that entailed all of the courses I took for my doctoral program. I had to know every subject. I had to know every background of authors, scholars, and, and things. And the day, the week that I went to, um, to take those exams, I said, well, what, what exam question am I getting at? We do not know. You pick it out of a hat. And that's literally what I did. And then I had two hours to write on that subject that, um, that I picked out of the hat. After that three-day of comprehensive exam, I said to the Lord, I will never, no, never, ever do this ever again. It was horrible. The anxiety filled my life. My blood pressure was probably skyrocketing high. Uh, I didn't eat well. I didn't sleep well. And there are those types of tests that come into our life. And so this is what James is saying. Blessed are you, happy are you, when you remain steady, faithful, under trial, and when you stood the test, the comprehensives, the, the, we're just not talking about a grammar test. We're talking about this lifelong call to being a Christian and persevering all the way to the end. This world is filled with ups and downs, lots of bumps and here's and there and dents. And it's when we get to glory, that's going to be a special day, friends. When we get to glory, James says, we will receive the crown of life. The crown of life. That's what we're looking for, too. That's what we're aiming toward. When we stand in the presence of Christ, in all his fullness, in all of his glory. Yes, that's what we're looking for. So, are you suffering today? Yeah, many people are suffering. Some people are suffering because they lost a spouse. Some people are suffering because they lost a father or a mother. James' audience is this very picture right here. They've lost a spouse. They've lost a father or mother, and now they are orphans under the care of the church. Some people are facing economic 
situations in their home country. And that leads to trial, temptations, and suffering. What will you do in order to get out of the problems that you are facing? Some people are sinful right now. They've they've fallen into the greed of temptation. And temptation has its power, and and it yields a a great punch against the human heart. And so someone is, is after money right now. Someone who listens to this message may be dealing with greed in their life and they are robbing from their employer. They're stealing from people because they want to get rich in this life. Some people are dealing with a corrupt legal system. It happens here in the United States all the time. People get put into prison for a crime that they did not commit. And so they're struggling And in that struggle and in that trial that they're going through, they have to have a right perspective about who God is, especially if they're a believer in Jesus Christ, especially if they're a Christ follower. They have to have a right mind. And so James gives us two practical points that I would like to encourage you with is when you face temptation and trial in your life is to keep looking toward eternity. Have a right perspective in this life in view of eternity. That's what James says in verse 12. He says, remain steadfast. Remain steady when life gets chaotic. Remain steady when life is, is, is falling apart and things are not making sense. Because when you look toward eternity, the author and perfecter of your faith, the one who endured, the one who ran the race, the one who is now seated at the right hand of the, of the Father on high will come and consummate and bring all these things together and he will take the wrong and make it right. Grace and peace be to God. That's what he, we are looking forward to as Christ's followers. Now, I get it. Today is long. Tomorrow will be longer because it's Monday, right? It's hard to think about eternity. There are those moments where you wonder what it's going to be like when we are in eternity. The Bible is very clear that when you're absent from this body, where are you at? You're present with the Lord. Many of my family have gone on before me and are, who are Christ followers are present where? They're present with who? They're present with the Lord. And they were to live their life in such a way in view of eternity and to be faithful all the way to the end so, so as to hear the words of Jesus, thou good and faithful servant, come in. The crown of life given to you and I. The second thing he says here is not only to keep looking at eternity, keep setting your mind on things above where the Lord Jesus Christ is seated and, and that's your vision. That's what you're hoping for, where Christ is seated. Because one day we will be with him. And so we need to keep believing in the promises that God has recorded in scriptures. All of the promises find their what? Find their yes in the Lord. Every promise in scripture given to us 
Find their yes in the Lord, and you, and you can believe it, and you can set your heart in them and say, yes, Lord, thank you for these promises that your, your faithfulness is new every what? Every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that you provide provision every day for my needs, that I shall not lack anything. I need that in my life. Because we are a blessed people. We are a D, a blessed people. We have refrigerators filled with food, and we forget who is the one that actually provided that food. Some of us have great places where we can work, and we forget the one who has provided that very job and the place where we can earn a living. We keep believing the promises of God. And these promises find their yes in Him, And we can know that he is the giver of all these good graces. And we get to experience them as Christ's follower. Blessed is the man who remains what? Steady. Perseveres under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those. You should circle this under your Bible. Who love him. So these are Christ's followers. These are believers in Jesus who have set their hearts in the gospel and believe. And without a shadow of a doubt, without, without fear and trepidation, they know they will be with Christ. And so they set their hearts on these things that are above where Christ is seated. And they long for his appearing. They long to be joined to the Lord. Now, in the scripture, as you should know, as a Christ follower, there are many times in the scripture where it talks about crowns. And I often thought, well, yeah, I'm going to get this crown and and I'm going to wear it. I'm like, yeah, I got this crown. How about you? And you're going to get this crown and -and so-and-so is going to get that crown. I often, as I've gotten older, I think these crowns are just but descriptions of faithfulness over life. And, and, and it's, a, it's a place of, of us for us as believers to know that God is going to reward us with, his, with, with the ability to stand in his presence. And so these crowns are pictures of salvation is another way of saying it. So we have the imperishable crown. The one, the athlete who runs, right? Runs the race. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You have the imperishable crown. They're running the race to receive this crown. Well, we have the crown of rejoicing in First Thessalonians that talks about, again, trial, struggle, endurance, enduring this life. We have the crown of righteousness in Second Timothy chapter 4. We have the crown of glory in First Peter chapter 5, talking about elders in the church. And then twice in the scripture, the crown of life is mentioned here in this passage and then in Revelation chapter 2. So what do all these crowns mean? Well, again, they are pictures of salvation. They're pictures of you and I enduring to the end so as to receive, to receive a reward. The reward is full presence into God's family, ushered in to share in all the inheritance that he promised in the scriptures. It's for us. It's for believers. But here's the catch, if there's a catch here today. The only way you can receive the crown is that you had to place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've had to come to a place in your life where you believe without a shadow of doubt, no doubt in your mind, that when you set your affections on Christ, he is the only way. 
for salvation to be given to you. And so you embrace the gospel. And maybe today is the day you come to Christ, that you receive the gospel, you believe by faith, you come and you realize that your sins separate you from God. And the only way you can spend eternity with him is that you embrace Christ, who will help you finish across the line. I can't run the race without Christ. I can't run the race without the Spirit in my life. And this life is difficult, friends. It's very difficult because it has, it's filled with many sufferings, it's filled with many temptations, and it's filled with many trials. And so I need the gospel. I need the gospel's power every day to make manifest, to make known in my own heart that if I yield to sin, if I yield to sin, there's death. And death separates me from God. But there's victory in the Lord. The second thing we learned today, as we look at our outline, the second thing is the Christian is, he, is to heed the warning of sin's power in verses 13 through 16. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, for he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Christian is to heed the warning of sin's power. You ever been given a warning before? Ever been pulled over by a police officer and sweat begins to go down your brow and you're like, oh man, now I owe $75 for going 10 miles over the speed limit. And and you're just like, oh Lord, I don't have that kind of money. The officer comes, may I have your license and registration, insurance? And you're like, oh, sweat continues to bead down your face and you're just disgusted. Why was I speeding? Why was I going so fast down the road? And he comes back, he goes, you deserve a what? You deserve a ticket, but I'm going to give you a warning. Sort of like that. God's warnings throughout Scripture are for you to take a pause, for you to contemplate and, and think upon and say, oh, if I go down this street, um, there are consequences. If I make this decision there's going to be some ramifications behind it. And so here James gives some warnings. And so he gives us some really practical warnings here and, and dealing with temptation. He gives us what temptation looks like. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So he's going right to the character of who God is. God can't be tempted, and God will not entice or tempt you, uh, his servants. So there are some real practical ways of dealing with temptation. The first one is this. Know who you are. The first thing about temptation is to know the depths of who you are, your own very personality. What are the things in your life that would tempt you to go, if, if, if allowed, or if you make that final decision, what are those things that would take you down that road that you don't really want to go down? Because if you do, you're now in sin. So you have to know yourself. I have to know who I am personally. I don't know you. You don't know what? You don't know me. I mean, you know me, but I don't know you in the sense I don't know. I'm not inside of you. I don't know what's going on in your mind. I don't know what you're thinking about. But God knows what you're thinking about. The Spirit knows what you're thinking about. 
your wife, your spouse, your husband, your child doesn't know what you're thinking about. God knows, right? And you know. You, are, you know the things that make you down. You know the things that make you frustrated in this life. And there are many, aren't there? Many things that discourage us. So know yourself more than anyone else. The second thing you need to do is you need to hunt out the sin in your own personal life. So this is what he says, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So what he has done here, he's given us a, 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 almost like a picture of what a hunter does when they go on a hunt. They, they go after their prey. I mean, I know some of you are hunters. I've seen it on Facebook. You're, you're out in the hunt. I mean, you're actually perched up in a tree, and you got your camel on, you're black. I mean, you got everything. You're like the, the Duck Dynasty duos on TV. You have it all together. You know exactly how much ammo you have. You know where the deer is prancing around, and even the pheasant or whatever else you're hunting after. And so you go. I remember one Duck, Duck, Duck Dynasty show. They were out um, looking for deer. And they were in this little hut, hiding, hiding. And one of the gals is like, well, we want to go with you. want to go. And so the guy's like, well, what we do is we spray um, urine. They had a spray bottle with urine. And they spray around the trees. And, and so the gals, the, 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 the wives want to say, well, we really want to be with you guys. This is where the hunt is at. And they started spraying themselves with the urine. And they're like, in the middle of the show, they're like, what is that smell? Well... They used the bait on themselves. And that's what the enemy does. That's what Satan himself does. But let me just say this. That's what the world does. That's what temptation does. There's this thing that we really want, and it can entice us, and it can lure us, and it can trap us, and it then leads to what? It leads to what he says is sin, separation from God. Sin keeps us from God's holiness, keeps us from God's glory. But the truth is this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been bought with a price. You've been sanctified. You've been cleansed. Your sins have been washed away. You are not your own. God lives in you. And there needs to be a difference in your life. And so you need to hunt out the sin. Just like a hunter goes after the prey, maybe he needs sitting in a perched tree waiting for the deer, and he shoots it. Target. Right there. Hunts after it. And that's my third practical step is once you hunt after it and you know yourself and you know those things that that get you down, you know those things that entice you, you then have to kill that very sin in your life. Get rid of it. Do whatever it takes to kill the very thing that makes you frustrated, the anger that is inside your heart. You have to kill that sin in your life, and otherwise it will keep killing you. And there are sins like that. John Owen, in the great works of the mortification of the flesh, says this, Let no man think to kill sin with a few easy or gentle strokes. He who has once smitten a serpent, if he follow not on his blow until he be slain, may repent that he ever began the quarrel in the first place. 
But imagine yourself with a stick. Imagine yourself a snake. And you go and swat the, the snake. My older brother, Christopher, loved to do that. We used to have a lot of snakes around our house. And one day, he, he was out in the garden. There was this gardener snake. And he took, he took a stick and he just, like, swat at it. And the, you'd think gardener snake would, you know, crawl away as fast. That thing jumped, whatever. It, it, it went up, like, and started hissing. And it went after him and bit him on the, on the arm. And, and he started, oh, whatever, started bleeding. You have a stick, right? So here it is. Either you entice the snake, and what do you do? You hit it a couple times. You, you jab at it a couple times. And, and, and if you don't kill it, if you don't, you don't put it to rest, what will that sin do? It, it will jump after you, and it will bite onto you, and it will take you down. And all the venom, all the, all the poison within that very sin, you will be ruined for it for life. Many great men have fallen in this life. Many great men, many great pastors that I, I've loved and, and, and cherished some of the words they have said. And in, in this last century have decided because they've been t- enticed by power, fame, and leadership in their life, and, and, and they, they, just, they just do it. And all of a sudden, they're caught in the sin, and a, they are like a mighty great fall has taken place in the church of Jesus Christ. You got to kill the sin. Now, let me give you some tools on how to kill sin in your life. The first one is to spot the primary sin that you're dealing with. Look at verse 14. But each person is what? You should underline this. Is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, bracket that in your Bible, by his what? By his own desires. Friends, I have desires, you have desires. My desires are not your desires, and yours are not mine. So each of you need to spot the primary sin that you're facing. So if you're dealing with anger right now, I'm not necessarily dealing with anger. I may. Next week I might. Maybe tomorrow I might. But today you're dealing with anger, and anger has festered, and anger continues to irritate you, and you continue to lash out at people. You lash out at your children, your your spouse, you're, you lash out everywhere because you're, you're just, you're, you're irritable, you're frustrated, you're mad. You might even be mad at God right now. So anger is the snake. And what do you got to do with that snake? Are you going to hit it with a, with a stick? What are you going to do? Some of you don't like, and I know Peta is going to get called today because Joel said we're to what? We're to kill what? What are we to do? We're to kill the snake that it's right there. You're lured and you're enticed by your own desire. Spot the primary sin in your life. Robert Murray McChain says this about personal reformation in your own life. He says, this is the lie of Satan. I might as well as speak of gunpowder getting by habit a power of resisting fire so as not to catch spark. The seeds of all sins are in my heart and perhaps all the more dangerous because I do not see them. I like that. Gunpowder and what? A, a spark. A little sin leavens the what? Leavens the whole lump of dough. And you've got to get rid of it. Remove the leaven. Get rid of the sin in your life. So spot the primary sin, as James says it. Let me give you a second one. Investigate your heart. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 25 says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness and folly and foolishness that is madness. I turned my heart to know and search out. You have to investigate your own heart. Lord, what are those things in my heart that are keeping me from being holy right now? What are those things that I'm tempted with, if allowed, and if out of the bounds of your holiness, what would that do in my life? And so I need warnings. I need, I need red flashing marks. I need warning, Will Robinson. Don't do that. Y'all remember that show? I'm dating myself. Warning. I was teaching a class at Moody, uh, this is several years ago, and we were going down one of the hallways to go outside, and there was an exit door that said, do not exit this way. The alarm will go off. I forget which one of my child did it, but they actually went through the door, and the, the, I mean, it was like everyone knew, right? Everyone knew you did what you were not to do. So what happens when you do what you're not supposed to do? Let me give you another one. Pray the scriptures or a scripture, whatever, doesn't matter. Pray a scripture, and it might be Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Let me give you another one. Know when you are most vulnerable. One of the times in your life when you're most vulnerable to the enticement of sin. I have found with many people, it's after a long day of work, a long stressful day of work. Things are not going well. Maybe at the place you are working, there are demands and schedules and things and deadlines that you have to get done. And after a season of putting out, right? a season of pull of just doing everything you possibly can in your day. You grow tired and weary and you begin to think about things that you shouldn't be doing. You begin to do things that you shouldn't be doing. Brothers, Galatians chapter 6 says this, if anyone is caught in any transgression, who you who are spiritual should go restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And I love this. You need this bracketed in your Bible because I do. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be what? What does it say there? Tempted. The very sin that someone else is dealing with might be the sin that you would eventually be enticed to do as well. And so Paul gives this word warning here. Be careful. When you go to gently restore a brother or a sister who's in sin and dealing with that sin, you be careful about your mind and setting your affections on Christ. When you go into that situation and that person is dealing with anger, you be careful that you don't fall to anger in your own life. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, keep watch first for yourself, lest you be tempted. Let me give you another one. Study and learn from your past mistakes. Ooh. How many like that one? 
Study and learn from your past mistakes. When was the last time you fell into that sin? Because if you study and learn from that, you know when those things will come up in your life and, and they will hit you. So if it's a long day at work and, and you know that those long and stressful weeks at work will potentially lead me down a road at the end of the week that I really don't want to be in. So I study and learn from my past so I don't do it. And I love the scriptures because in the scriptures we have who recorded for us. We have people who have a lot of past mistakes. And so we can look at the men and women of old and say, oh, Lord, we, we, we don't venerate or praise the sin, but we thank you, Lord, for putting it in the scriptures so that we don't do the same. We don't commit adultery. We don't lie. We don't kill. We, I mean, we, we, we don't bear false witness. Lord, thank you for these witnesses who live life, and we have the open book to see who they were and how they acted. Lord, I don't want to be a Moses who complains. Lord, I don't want to be an Achan who, who, when God said, when you go into the land, destroy everything amongst you. Do not take anything. Do not take any of the spoils. I don't want to be an Achan who goes into the city and finds some spoils. And he says, I coveted it and I take it for myself. I put it in my tent and I buried it. And then they go on to a next march, to a next war. And everyone begins to die. And Joshua gets on his knees and says, oh Lord, I thought you were for us. God said, no, I am for you, but there's sin in the camp. Deal with the sin. And so Joshua calls the nation together, oh, every man by man, every tribe by tribe. And they all gather together, and he rises up early in the morning, and he says, man of Israel, there's sin in the camp. And if God is for us, we must deal with the sin. And the lot came down to Achan and his own household. And Joshua says, in a sense, declare right now, your allegiance. He says, yes, I've sinned. I've taken the spoils. He confesses it. But there were direct consequences to that. And he dies. His whole family, his herd, his animals, everything, taken down to the Valley of Achor, and, and they were put to death. So there's some sins that lead to what? To death. There are some sins that, that are serious in nature and will take you down quickly. Ananias and Sapphira were enticed by wealth and keeping a proceed back from the Lord. And because they lied, they died like that. They were died instantaneously. And great fear seized the whole church because sin is serious. Study and learn from your past mistakes. Study and learn from the men and women of the Bible and let me give you another one. Deal with the sin right away. One of the things we struggle with is we let sin fester in our heart and we don't deal with it. We let it grow and it grows and it grows and we, we might cover it up. We, we put it there and, and then it comes back with fierce strength and power. And David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. One more. Never imagine that you're beyond a particular sin in your own life. And never imagine that you could never do that that you heard on the news today. I could never do that. 
How could a mother keep her teenage boy in a bathroom for two years locked up? That's what you're saying right now. I would never, Lord, I would never do that. Never imagine yourself beyond the worst sin that you can think of right now. Because each one of us, if enticed and lured by the flesh, could do the very thing that that mother did. Keep her boy locked up. Sin is, sin is serious, folks, and you have to deal with it. I can't deal that with you. I can help you. I can come alongside you. I can pray for you. But you have to kill. You have to know yourself, and you have to pray, God, would you give me wisdom over this? I need your help, and would you kill it? Would you help me kill this thing in my life? Well, let me give you a last one. This is what we'll land on as we close. The Christian is reassured in this biblical passage when they go through trial and they go through suffering and when they go through testing, the Christian is reassured of God's grace in the gospel. I want you to leave today knowing when you leave these doors and these premises and go home that you have the gospel. If the gospel is in your life and you're saved and you're a believer, you're part of the family of God. God's image is stamped in you and you, my friend, you can live a victorious life in Jesus Christ. He grants you the victory. He gives you the privilege to live in that victory. And so you can be happy when you go through various trials of various kinds because there are many that you'll face. The Christian is given this reassured hope in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Notice what he says. Don't be deceived because there is that sense that I will be deceived. When I go through dark days, I might begin to deceive myself. God has brought me into this trial. God has made this trial take upon my life. Now, when we look at biblical passages such as Job, God allowed who? God allowed the, the tempter to come and rain havoc. But that was in order for Job to be refined like fire. And God might allow trial in your life so as to prove your faith in the end, to test your faith, to, res- to make your faith resolve in him and to find your trust and, and, and hope in the Lord in all situ- situations. Look at what he says. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from who? From God, coming down from the Father of lights. So he ends with the character of God for us. He ends with this hope that as you fix your mind on the Lord Jesus, you can know that God's character remains perfect. He doesn't tempt us. He doesn't change or shift or, 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 or entice us with a bait. That's what Satan does. That's what our flesh does. But God is perfect. And every good gift that comes down from God is of his grace and his mercy. When I was a, when I was a boy, uh, back before the internet and Al Gore created the internet, um, um, you know, internet, you can go on Amazon. But back in the day, we, we used to get the Sears catalog. How many remember the Sears catalog when you were, you were little? I mean, you like, you long for the Sears catalog to come to your house. I mean, you just long for it because uh, us little boy, we go to the, we go to the toy section because that was the place where all the newest latest toys would come out. But, but if you went to the Sears store, they wouldn't have all the toys that they would have in the catalog. 
Y'all know what I'm talking about? And so you, you had to have your parents fill out this registration form of the things that you wanted. And then they would send it in. And it'd be like a month or so before the, that product would come back to the store. And you would go to the store, the catalog section of the store, and pick up that thing you wanted. There was a bike for sale in the Sears catalog. I still remember the price, $55. And I tore out the page, and I circled, put it on the refrigerator. I said, Mom, Dad, this is what I want. Go get it for me. We're not going to get it for you. You got to earn it. You got to work for it. Got to work for it. We're like slaves. We got to work for it. Got to work for it. Well, you know, I worked for it. We, 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 I saved money, did all that. And there was that moment in time where it's like the $55 was there in the bank and my little passbook. And, and, I, and I said, Mom, fill out the registration. I want my bike. I want the bike. So the bike came, and so it was a big deal. We, we, we went to the Sears store, and we went out to eat. I was so excited because, oh, we're going to get the bike. And I, I had my $55 from the bank. I went to the Sears catalog section of the store, and I could see the box. It was there, right? And I put my $55 down, and my dad said, no, 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 son, I'll pay for it. And he put his money down. And I just kind of looked at dad, and I said, why would you do something like that? It's our gift to you. Every good gift that comes down from God is from Him. He gives it to you in the gospel by His grace. Every good and perfect gift is from God. And today, in verse 17, His grace is personally received. You and I can personally receive His good gifts in the gospel through Jesus Christ. And you can become a Christian today if you don't know him. The second thing you can know is that his grace is eternally marked from the beginning of time. He's the father of lights. In him there's no variation or shifting of change. There's nothing. He he is the same as Jesus Christ is the same in Hebrews chapter 13. He is the same. Bookend to bookend. And you can trust him when you go through your dark days, when you go through your temptations, and there will be many in your life that you'll have to keep on fighting. Please don't use a stick. A stick won't help. Christ will, though. Put the sin to death. The sin will flee. Flee from it. Run as fast as you can like a Joseph who flees from Potiphar's wife. Run so fast as you need to, and God will help you. And when you come to the end of your life, as it feels like, maybe that trial that you're going through, and you begin to question who God is in your life, you begin to think about God in a wrong way. I like what A.W. Tozer says, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. 10,000 temporal problems. He goes on to say, the gospel can lift this destroying burden from the mind to give beauty for ashes and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. But unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to the man until he sees a vision from God on high and lift it up. There will be no woe, no burden. Low views of God will destroy the gospel for all who hold on to 
You got to hold on to Christ. You have to hold on to his character. You have to hold on to the Lord. And so of his own, he says, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And here he begins to unravel what this gospel looks like. It was planned before the world was ever formed. It was in the heart of God to elect and bring us into the family of God. And because of these good gifts, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, every trial and every temptation, God knows we're going to go through them. And we're to cast our concerns on him. Elisha Hoffman, 1893, writes this hymn, I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. That's you. Tempted and tried, I need a great Savior. He will, and can, will help my burdens to bear. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus all of my cares and all of my sorrows. He will share. Oh, how the world to evil allures me. Oh, how my heart is tempted to sin. Here's what you need to do. If your heart is tempted to sin, I must tell Jesus, and he will enable over the world the victory to win. Friend, whatever trial you're going through, whatever struggle you're going through, you must tell Jesus all of your trials, and he will carry you through it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you sent Jesus through the gospel. The message of Jesus Christ is that he died, rose again, the third day for our justification so that we might stand in holiness before you and brought into the family of God. Lord, might you grant us anew to think as we should, right thoughts about you so that we might be relieved of 10,000 temporal problems in this life. Grant us your power, O Lord, by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.